0: In the spirit of reconciliation, Myeloma Australia acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to My Conversations, Myeloma Australia's podcast series. These podcasts are written and produced by our myeloma support nurses, For people living with myeloma, their family and friends, we aim to deliver interesting and up-to-date information on myeloma in a portable and convenient way through our podcast shows.
1: Welcome everyone to this episode of My Conversations, a Myeloma Australia podcast. My name is Natasha Clark and I'm one of the Queensland Myeloma Support Nurses at Myeloma Australia. I'm very pleased to be your host today. We're joined by myeloma expert and special international guest, Dr. Sharji Kumar. In this episode, Dr. Kumar talks about a special interest of his, the recognition and treatment and issues in people with MGUS and smouldering myeloma. Dr. Shaji Kumar is a myeloma specialist from the Mayo Clinic Cancer Centre in Minnesota, USA. Dr. Kumar works clinically as a haematologist in both bone marrow transplant and CAR-T therapies. He conducts the National Institutes of Health-funded research on translational of novel therapeutic agents in multiple myeloma. He has received funding from Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation to study the relationship between molecular profiles, treatment regimes for patients with myeloma. Dr Kumar's other area of research and interest are investigating the prevalence, onset and biomarkers for progression of monoclonal gomopathies. This is where we'd like to learn more from our international guest. This is a very special show today as we have brought our production team all the way from Melbourne to Sydney to Australia's largest haematology conference called BLOOD. BLOOD is an opportunity for medical professionals from around the world to come together and report on research and projects that they have undertaken. It is so great to be surrounded by many experts in the field, learning and collaborate with them. Thank you again for taking some time out to speak with me and intern the myeloma community in Australia. So, welcome.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Natasha. It's great to be here.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, Abnormalities of plasma cells can lead to a variety of malignant transformations, such as myeloma. However, sometimes these plasma cells can divide in an uncontrolled fashion, which leads to a spectrum of other disorders, such as MGUS and smouldering myeloma. For those who are new to the idea of a range of plasma cell disorders, can you briefly explain the difference between MGUS, smouldering myeloma, and active myeloma?
2: Yeah. There's a spectrum of disorders that in which the plasma cells uh, divide in a more uncontrolled fashion. Now, typically, these plasma cells are designed to increase in numbers in response to an infection or some foreign protein, and they actually mount that response, and once the infection goes away, they automatically wither away. For reasons that are not very clear, sometimes these plasma cells seems to just stay behind and they just continue to increase in numbers. and that can lead to a spectrum of disorders that we refer to as monoclonal cheyopathies. Now the earliest recognizable stage of this monoclonal chemopathy is the monoclonal chemopathy of undetermined significance, which essentially tells you that there is a clone of plasma cells that are abnormally dividing and increasing in numbers. And in the majority of those patients, these plasma cells also secrete a protein, which we refer to as a monoclonal protein. Now, the presence of the protein and the um, clonal plasma cells essentially make the diagnosis of a monoclonal gammopathy. Now, the end cell can be a variety of different manifestations. In the majority of the patients, uh, they just live with that little clone of plasma cells and nothing ever happens or nothing needs to be done for it. And these are the, uh, the patients with monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. Now, the larger epidemiological studies that have been done have clearly shown that a small proportion of patients with monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance can have a progression of the disease to a, to a point where we need to do something about it, and they actually need treatment that is designed to get rid of these plasma cells, or at least reduce the numbers of plasma cells. Now, the way they can create the um, kind of what we call end organ damage or clinical manifestations are through a variety of different mechanisms. The most common one that we encounter in the clinic is multiple myeloma. Now, multiple myeloma is a condition which is clinically characterized by lesions in the bone that can be destructive, leading to bone fractures, high levels of calcium. Patients can be anemic, um, and they can also have problems with their kidney function because the protein can get deposited in the kidney. Now, in between the active myeloma with all these characteristics that require therapy and the muggers, there is an intervening stage that we often refer to as smoldering multiple myeloma, as you mentioned. Now, the smoldering multiple myeloma, we don't think is a unique biological entity. It is actually more of a a transitional stage, which probably includes patients who still have a muggers and patients in whom it has kind of crossed that threshold and they're just waiting for myeloma to develop. Now, um, the myeloma sometimes, you um, know, we may start treating these patients with myeloma even without some of these symptoms develop if they have some changes in their blood tests or changes in their imaging studies like MRI, which suggests that one of these bad things are going to happen pretty soon. So over the years, uh, that is a change that has happened where we try to intervene a little earlier to try and prevent the inevitable, so to speak. And we think that actually can have um, positive impact on the long-term outcomes of these patients. Now, clearly, there are other manifestations um, that these abnormal plasma cells can present with. The next common is probably amyloidosis. And it is a condition where the the light-chain protein or the the monoclonal protein that is being made by these plasma cells gets converted to what we call amyloid protein, and it's an insoluble protein that can get deposited in a variety of different organs, most commonly heart, kidney, liver, um, gastrointestinal tract, and and so forth. Um, And that is also a stage where we have to treat these patients and try to get rid of those plasma cells so that uh, they don't continue to be symptomatic. And then there's a whole host of other disorders, probably a couple dozen different manifestations, uh, these plasma cell Uh, abnormality can present with. Some of them involves just peripheral neuropathy, some could be skin lesions, some can be several syndromes that includes a bunch of different symptoms like POEM syndrome and so forth. So clearly it's a big family of disorders, the majority of whom we see uh, with either myeloma or amyloidosis.
1: Thanks, that was great. So how many people do you think are living with MGUS around the world and how many of them will progress on to one of those diseases.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think we we don't have probably a really good estimate. There have been studies that have been done which has given up a rough, rough estimate because this is not a condition that is likely to be picked up um, in everyone. In fact, some of the epidemiological studies that Dr. Kyle did over, you know, almost you know, last 22 to 3 decades have clearly shown that we probably not don't recognize more than maybe 10 or 15% of the people who actually have monoclonal gomopathy have undetermined significance. So that translates to millions of people out there who probably have a monoclonal gammopathy. Now, the majority of the patients with amogas don't have that progress onto active myeloma or any of those conditions we just talked about. We think the risk of it actually transforming to something that needs treatment is probably about 1% per year. Or if you were to take 100 people and follow them for 25 years, about 20% of them will develop a condition that needs treatment. Of course, the majority of them are going to be myeloma, but it could also be uh, amyloidosis, another type of lymphoma called Waldenstrom's microglobulinemia and so forth.
1: So watching and waiting can be really stressful. Um, is it worth screening for this disease?
2: Yeah, I th- you know, it's a difficult question. Uh, and you, know, you want to screen for a disease only if you are going to be doing something about it. Um, and at this point in time identifying uh, somebody at the stage of monoclonal of undetermined significance in the vast majority we're just going to watch them and it is a high likelihood that you know again 80% of them never going to get anything that would need treatment that means for every one person who could end up getting treatment there's going to be four other people who are just going to be worried about uh, the the muggers for the rest of their lives so I think we had to be very careful about screening for muggers. Um, now having said that, I think uh, in, with clinical trials showing that patients with high risk smoldering myeloma may benefit from early treatment, um, there is certainly you know an increasing um, need or uh, realization that we m- want to identify these patients with high risk smoldering myeloma. So I think the dilemma that we face is how do we identify them without necessarily picking up every muggers that's out there? So there are clinical trials looking at uh, you know, more of an enriched approach. Just screen those people where there is a very high likelihood that we're going to find a high-risk moldering myeloma, whether it be because we find that they have an elevated total protein in their blood or they have strong family history, um, especially people with African-American uh, ethnicity. We know that um, those they have a three-fold higher risk compared to Caucasians in getting these monoclonal chemopathies. So if you have somebody an African-American person who has one or two family members who are affected, that is somebody whom we would definitely like to screen because the risk now is much higher of them having something and, two, having something that might benefit from intervention.
1: Thank you, Dr. Kumar. We're just going to take a short break now and we'll be back soon. By subscribing to Myeloma Australia, you will receive our monthly Myeloma Muster E newsletter, my news magazine, invitations to local and online support groups and seminars, information on how you can help Australians access new treatments and invitations to community engagement events. Welcome back. I'm Tash Clark, talking with Dr Kumar about MGUS and smouldering myeloma. People often ask if there's anything they can do to prevent the MGUS or the smouldering myeloma progressing. Do we have any knowledge about that at this stage?
2: So we don't have any in proven intervention um, that can uh, prevent the progression from MGUS to myeloma. There are a lot of studies that are ongoing looking at you know things without a lot of toxicity, for example, things like green tea or other um, things that people have been studying trying to see if we can decrease the risk of progression from mugus to myeloma unfortunately you know most of the treatments that we use for myeloma come with a whole host of side effects so it'll be hard to justify um, giving that kind of treatment to you know thousands millions of people who actually majority of them you're know, probably not going to benefit from that or don't need it so I think what we really need um, is the um, tools to identify who is at the highest risk of progression from muggers to myeloma or smoldering myeloma to multiple myeloma so that we can actually do a more risk-adapted approach uh, to uh, potential interventions that, again, still needs to be proven in clinical trials.
1: And are there studies occurring around the world looking at these sorts of um, markers?
2: Absolutely. And I think you know, we have come a long way uh, compared to maybe you know, two or three decades ago in terms of trying to identify the um, people who are at the highest risk of progression. So there are some clinical markers that have consistently been helpful. One of them, obviously, is the size of the monoclonal protein. The higher it is, the more the risk that someone is going to progress. We've also been able to show that serum-free light chain assay, which detects the kappa and the lambda-free light chains in the blood, they can, if they are abnormal, um, they can also increase the risk of progression. And then there are, again, the percentage of plasma cells in the bone marrow has been predictive. Um, Evidence that the M-spike is actually suppressing the normal immunoglobulins have been shown to be predictive. So a variety of different markers, presence of circulating plasma cells in the bloodstream, uh, some bone markers, um, they all have shown to be of value. But in the clinic, what we tend to use is a scoring system that incorporates the size of the M-spike you know, again, the free light chain ratio being abnormal, the type of my M-spike, whether it's an IgG M-spike versus a non-IgG M-spike. Now, those three factors have been used to create a scoring system for patients with muggers. And more recently, we have kind of tried to make it a little more sensitive or more specific, um, rather by incorporating the presence of any fish abnormalities in the bone marrow when it's being done. So I think there's a lot of work that's ongoing trying to understand now, can we find every single factor that could be predictive so that we can come to a point where we can correctly predict uh, for at least 80 to 90% of the patients what their uh, disease course is going to be? The problem is the current scoring system still only maybe correctly identifies 60% of those people. So there's a real probability that we might harm the other 40% um, by exploring these early intervention options in monoclonal up of undetermined significance. Now, it's a slightly different story for the small tree myeloma. I think we have better systems there. And part of it is because the you know, the probability of them getting myeloma is much higher than MUGA. so I think these systems actually work better. So there we have used um, the bone marrow plasma cell percentage, the size of the M protein, and the free light chain ratio as markers to identify those at the highest risk of progression. In fact, the International Myeloma Working Group did a large study of almost 2,000 people to to try and validate a system that was initially developed at Mayo, what we refer to as a 20-to-20, which is basically 20% plasma cells in the bone marrow, 2 grams of M-spike, and 20 free light chain ratio. So if you have two of those three, um, then your risk of progression uh, from smoldering myeloma to active myeloma is about 50% at two years. And we feel that that risk is high enough that we probably want to try and explore options to try and decrease that risk. So the currently ongoing clinical trials in smouldering myeloma are looking at that group of patients to see if we can employ some of those myeloma-type therapies to try and decrease the risk of them progressing to active myeloma.
1: So if a patient um, or people with MGUS or smouldering myeloma really want to feel like um, they're helping the population or helping themselves, should they involve themselves in clinical trials?
2: Very good question, absolutely. I think, you know, again, given that these are rare conditions, the, the sooner we learn um, about this, the better, we, better it is. And the only way to do that is to have, you know, as many people participate in the clinical research. It doesn't have to be a treatment trial. It could also be a study looking at just the, how the disease evolves, what are the markers, as we just asked, um, that predict for progression. And the more patients we study and the more markers we study, they're more likely we're going to come up with uh, systems that are much more sensitive and specific uh, in terms of correctly identifying those people at risk of progression. So I think I would strongly encourage everybody with muggers and small ring, even though you know they might feel that you know nothing is being done to slow down their progression uh, immediately to contribute to the research by participating in trials and providing samples um, as is um, feasible so that we can learn things and even though it you know, it could very well benefit them too, but even if it doesn't, it'll benefit other people in the future.
1: That's great. Thank you, Dr. Kuber, for all your incredible knowledge that you've shared with us today. Um, some people might find this knowledge uh, a little bit confronting and they can always call the myeloma support line on 1800 myeloma or email nurses at nurses at myeloma.org.au. But thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of My Conversations. We'd love to hear from you. So send us your questions or topic ideas to our email address, nursesatmyeloma.org.au. Whilst the advice and opinions of our guests is welcomed, This podcast provides general information and is not intended to replace medical care or the advice of your treating team. Please talk to your doctor if you have any questions about your diagnosis or treatment. Your doctor can answer your questions, talk with you about your treatment goals and provide you with extra support.